Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, October 18th at 11 a.m. As always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. And Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Good morning. Later in the podcast, we'll have an interview I taped last week with California Attorney General Javier Becerra. And big thanks to Mary Agnes Carey for filling in hosting the podcast while Joanne and I and some other health reporters were learning more about health care on the other coast last week. But first, the news. Election Day is less than three weeks away. How did that happen? And as we've kind of been noting here, health is a top issue, if not the top issue in many races around the country, particularly the issue of ensuring that people with pre-existing conditions can continue to get health insurance coverage. The problem, it seems, for Republicans right now is that their eight-year crusade against the Affordable Care Act, including a lot of unsuccessful votes in 2017, would also get rid of those pre-existing condition protections that are providing... uh, that are proving so popular with voters. So what we're seeing is a combination of literally rewriting history, as in taking their opposition to the ACA off of websites and out of campaign literature, and running ads proclaiming themselves in favor of those same protections that they voted against. Where are we seeing this, and can it actually work? Uh, Yes, you are seeing um, Republicans who um, voted to repeal the ACA last year suddenly embracing coverage for pre-existing conditions. Polling has really shown that they are vulnerable on this issue because pre-existing conditions are one of the most popular parts of the Affordable Care Act. And the interesting thing is that you're finding Republicans who are trying to assert that they would protect pre-existing conditions then also coming under intense attack from Democrats who are saying that basically they can't have it both ways. They can't have said they were trying to repeal. So it's it's a risky tactic. And the other interesting thing is that many of the Republicans who are saying, look, um, if we win, we're going to make sure that pre-existing conditions are covered. They're not laying out how they would do that, which is also sort of a, a realm of attack you're seeing some Democrats look at. I mean, obviously, they're looking kind of at some of the things that they talked about last year, like high risk pools. But um, even if you look at the legislation that was introduced by um, I think it was 10 Republicans on pre-existing conditions. Yeah, the, the Tom Tillis bill, the yeah, Senator Tom yeah, Tillis bill. Yeah, I mean, right away that opened them up to attacks because it really did, it allowed people to get coverage, but not necessarily for their pre-existing conditions. But you're right, this is becoming like the central issue, especially in a number of competitive races. And um, whereas just a couple of weeks ago, Medicare for all was like, everything that people were talking about. Now it's pre-existing conditions. Well, it has been since June. since the Right. Since but the, I mean, it, right. it's accelerated, I think, right. as we're getting closer well, to we're, the We're seeing all these warm, fuzzy ads now from Republicans. Republicans who have members of their own family or their child with a pre-existing condition. Exactly. They said, oh, I know what this means. But in fact, um, and they're not talking about repeal very much. Um, you know, we had a story about Kathy McMorris Rogers and who, who does have a special needs child and who has up close and personal 
acquaintanceship with pre-existing conditions and the difficulties of having a child. And she's a member of the Republican leadership she's in the, the House. She's the woman Fozzi member. She's the uh, the mother of three. Uh, she is the only woman in the top leadership. She's got a really tough race. And one of the issues in her race, this is in the eastern, eastern Washington state, she's never had a really tough race, and she has a really tough race, and pre-existing conditions is all over the place. You're also seeing and this. And she voted, for, she's the only congressperson in the state of Washington who voted for the House repeal bill, or any <clears throat> repeal bill. Josh Hawley also has an ad out about his, his son. And remind us a, who he right, is. He is right. the attorney general in Missouri who's running against um, Claire McCaskill, who is Another basic, very tight race. Exactly. And so, you know, the problem he has is that he signed on to this lawsuit that 20, 20 state officials um, put forward, led by Texas, uh, Kim Paxton there in Texas. Um, and Patrick Morrissey in West Virginia is another attorney general who signed on to that lawsuit. That and would say that the Who's running for Senate. <laughs> yes, exactly, against Joe Manchin. And uh, the lawsuit says that the health care law is unconstitutional, including pre-existing conditions. We've talked about this a lot. Um, it's interesting to see how this is playing out in different states. In Texas, uh, Pete Sessions is a member of Congress, senior member of Congress, who's been there a long time. He introduced one of those resolutions, which was non-binding, doesn't really have the force of law on pre-existing conditions. And so even in Texas, we're seeing that this is a big issue because it pulls so well. Everybody wants coverage for pre-existing conditions. And the Ted Cruz situation there is I just fascinating. I mean, this is the fellow who, as Beto O'Rourke in his new ad points out, shut down the government back in 2013 to try to stop Obamacare. O'Rourke says in his ad it was because Cruz thought that too many people might get health care. Um, so, so it's shut it's down the government for two and a half weeks. Yes, and you know, followed it up. attention from the failure of healthcare.gov. Right. Yeah, yes, that's, that's right. True. I think the Democrats were very happy about that. Um, but you know, and he followed it up by he last year when we were having the big Senate debate over health care. Ted Cruz was the guy who brought us the amendment that said that if uh, an insurance company has one plan that complies with the health care law, then they could offer all these other plans that don't comply with the health care law, which would have led to different markets. Healthier people would have had cheaper insurance, but people with pre-existing conditions would have paid a lot more, and it would have been a lot pro- a big problem. So you know, it's it's vast. And yet in the debate the other night, yes. Ted, Ted Cruz announces himself in favor of protection for pre-existing conditions. He did. He did. And he talked about, you know, it was interesting also that Beto O'Rourke didn't really push back. He didn't come, come back and hammer on pre-existing conditions as much as I would have thought he would have. He mentioned it. But, you know, he he was attacked by Ted Cruz as being a proponent of socialized medicine. And Ted Cruz, I thought, landed a few punches there because bit of work talked about the nuances of his position and I thought he would just go back time and time again to pre-existing conditions um, so maybe maybe that was a little bit of a missed opportunity but we're seeing and we should point out that that Beto O'Rourke is is well behind Ted yes. Cruz in the polls now in the Senate race it's apparently not that close <laughs> or at least it seems not it was to be never that close. as close based on the polls it was never as close as Betomania suggested, but it was closer than anyone expected, and the trajectory was closing. And given Texas being, you know, beat red, and uh, Beto O'Rourke being, you know, not a centrist, he's a liberal Democrat, a progressive Democrat. I mean, he, he the polls showed him closer than anyone expected. The gap has widened again. But again, you know, 
unconventional candidates, as President Trump showed us, sometimes bring out unexpected voters. So we will not know. It, it looks like Cruz right now, but I don't like predicting yeah, <laughs> this year. Yeah. There are a lot I, of I wild predict. cards. <laughs> On the one hand, in Texas, they've never elected a Democrat statewide since 1994. Since Richards, right? Yeah. I but think. now he's got these, he's going, he's being more aggressive. And so, you know, one of the things that drove down his numbers was Ted Cruz kept coming out with these negative lines. And now that O'Rourke is, you know, more aggressive, Maybe the loss will be a little bit less. He's, maybe the gap. He's getting big crowds, and we just don't know how many of those crowds will actually come out to vote. The other thing is this is the last thing Republicans really actually want to be talking about. Like, they want to focus on the economy. They want to focus on taxes. They also really want to focus on the short-term health plans or the options that they say that will give consumers more choice. So they're sort of being boxed into this, and, and health care is not something you see in terms of um, data that we've done on advertising that they really want to be doing, and they're not really doing nearly as heavily in any way, shape, or form as the Democrats. But de- Democrats are running you know, eight gazillion ads on health care. Uh, right. You know, that's not the technically correct number, but, I mean, it's close. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, Democrats are flooding yeah, the airways. Health care is a much bigger issue, I think it's fair to say, in this campaign than even we predicted right. back And in it's spring. really focused, not just health care, it's really focusing on pre-existing. I mean, yeah. it's ho- focused, there are other issues. People are very concerned about costs. People are concerned specifically about drug costs. People are concerned about other things. But what is really crystallizing as a motivating factor is pre-existing conditions. And remember, the, the, the thing that was always the most popular part of the law across party lines is Republicans also thought there was a basic fairness about covering people who got sick. That's why people get insurance. Just like Democrats didn't ever really love that individual mandate thing. You know, that that was unpopular across party lines. Republicans hated it more and Republic and Democrats might like into pre-existing conditions more, but these are, you know, that was they're both sort of fairness issues. People didn't like being told by the government that you had to buy an insurance buy, buy insurance or face a fine. That was that was not popular. And this business of um, that if you get sick, you could still be covered is also a fairness issue that crosses party lines. People just, everybody either has a pre-existing condition or will someday. And it just, and, and Medicare covers them. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, it's more complicated who is affected, but there's a basic gut feeling that this is something that you should be protected against. That's what you have insurance for. Well, the other big popular political issue this year is doing something about prescription drug prices. Um, earlier this week, the Trump administration issued a rule that would, if implemented, require drug prices to be included in TV ads for prescription drugs. The prescription drug industry, not surprisingly, does not think this is a very good idea. Um, Stephanie, you wrote about this, too, this week. How how would it work? Well, it- a couple points on this. First of all, this would require drug makers to post in um, some text form the list price of the drug in their TV ads if it costs more than $35 uh, per month. The pharmaceutical trade lobby is also come forward the same day with some voluntary efforts that they were going to do, which is basically directing people to websites that have list price information, they say, but, you know, kind of, they say it gives more context and financial information for people. One of the things I think is really interesting that I just have to say about this from all the sources I talk with is, yes, this is getting a lot of publicity. This has really gotten people talking. But Number one, there's a real sense that this is kind of marginal in terms of effect compared to other things in the blueprint. 
Two, um, that blueprint all, being the president's the, the drug plan. To, blueprint. Yeah. And two, there's also a sense that this is the some of this is political show to some extent. The Trump administration can say, look, we're being really hard on this because it's something consumers can understand. The pharmaceutical industry can say, hey, we fought this. This this happened. And now next time something comes up, we can say we, we were subject to this. So I think it's it's just really interesting to me to see how much attention this has gotten over something that was announced back in May was coming when there's so many other things that sources I've talked with say will have a more tangible effect. We did a, a, Politico does some public health polling with the Harvard School of Public Health, and we actually asked about some of the items in the in the President Trump's uh, drug blueprint. This was uh, several weeks ago, two polls ago, and that provision, the direct saying disclosing prices as part of ads, was really popular. Yeah, people at the same time, it. people didn't really think it would make that much difference, but they liked the idea, yeah. and yeah. they liked the idea a lot. Yeah, uh, and yet, and yet, the prices—I mean, so complicated. Yeah, I was to say there is no price for, for. I mean, yeah, there is there. I suppose there's a manufacturer list price, but it's it's one of those things that everybody pays a different price for for the same drug. Well, actually, I had to pick up a prescription last night, and this is the prescription I had taken. And then because the price, I switched to something else. And then I found out about the online coupon, and I switched back. I went, and it, it said $90. And I said, and I have a coupon. So it was $15. And as they redid the paperwork, and I handed over my $15, the clerk at the at the drugstore says, you know, we don't set these prices. It's your insurer. <laughs> She's clearly been trained to say <laughs> Don't blame me. Well, I'm sure. I mean, I certainly have been to the to the pharmacy where somebody, you know, gets up to the front and they hand them the, the package and they say that'll be $450 and the person just walks away. Yeah. Either, you know got to sort it out with the insurance company or they don't have insurance or they just don't. I mean, you know, a lot of these. Yeah. Every 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 drug, when you go go to the pharmacy counter, it seems to be either 10 or 20 dollars or hundreds or thousands of dollars. They're, they're so just... it was thank you for your business. Don't blame us. Well, yeah. what is going to be interesting about this, other than the fact that I think I think based on my sources, some of it is political posturing. What is going to be interesting is the likelihood of litigation yes. from the pharmaceutical industry over the First Amendment issue. Um, and the legal scholars I've spoken to say that they kind of think that the Trump administration is on somewhat shaky grounds with this. So that is where I think it's kind of interesting, frankly. I think that's why in Congress there was such consternation over the little amendment that they were trying to get into the spending bill on this issue. Uh, Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Dick Durbin of Illinois were trying to put in a million dollars into the spending bill and give a little more authority to HHS for this regulation. And the reason why is that Azar, HHS Secretary Alex Azar had told them, I really need some backup. Look, I'm going to get sued. And so this rule may not take effect for a long time, may not take effect ever. We'll see. I mean, no, it's going to take a little while to go through the notice Supre- and comment. It's going to end up anyway. right. It's going to end up. I suspect it will end up in the Supreme Court, not this June, but the June after, and maybe even later than that. And I uh, told my uh, one of our healthcare reporters yesterday, you know, <laughs> stay flexible. Don't book any. Don't don't make any non-refundable travel plans for June of 2020. <laughs> well, that feeds into something else I wanted to ask about, um, which is that my colleagues here at Kaiser Health News this week published a new database where you can look up how much in campaign contributions the largest pharmaceutical organizations have given to members of Congress. Uh, spoiler, Democrats get lots of contributions as well as Republicans. Particularly if they're can- ch- chairman. Right? Exactly. If or from New Jersey. Right. If or on the chairman from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. Those on the relevant committees that write that, you know, that, that ranking, govern on the ranking members. Yeah, that case, govern right. on, on drugs and tend, do dead, tend to get more in contributions. But what do we know about the relationship between contributions in general and then doing an industry's bidding. It's not always a one-to-one relationship, right? You 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 give you give a member of Congress money and they do what you want. 
it's not always that overt. And it doesn't always work. People give money to, they want to be seen as giving money to both sides. So they might actually give some money to someone in a party that really isn't on their side. So it's hard to say that this person cast this vote because of this dollar contribution. On the other hand, there's a lot of drug industry money in Washington and in the states. There are a lot of drug industry lobbyists. I have seen the number and I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's way more lobbyists than there are lawmakers. Um, both for pharma, the trade group, as well as the individual companies. This town, when, when the drug industry loses something in Congress, as it did on, recently on the Donut Hall, although they're trying to get that overturned, um, we all write in a rare defeat. <laughs> so can you look at this very useful and interesting tool that, that Kaiser Health developed about drug-related donat- drug donations and say, oh, that explains this vote? You can't do that. Can you look at it in aggregate and just say... That's a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) And And it is a lot of money. And there is a lot of bipartisan support in Congress for the drug industry. The drug industry's contributions right now, they're giving more to House Republicans than House Democrats, but they're giving more to Senate Democrats than to Senate Republicans because we have so many Democrats running for re-election this cycle. And overall, they're giving more money to Republicans. And they have a powerful message. We are making products that save your life. So, you know, that's a pretty good slogan. And, and Or improve your life or, you know, help you live longer or help you live better or you know, probably we shouldn't just talk about controlling your pain but they, they do they make a product that that people on both sides like they're this is not the tobacco industry i was just going to say so, you know in, in all the years i've been covering congress sort of the two really behemoth industries had or you know who almost never lost were the drug industry and the tobacco industry but unlike the tobacco industry we need the drug industry right i mean the drug industry is making something that is valued and their their response is that often to, to critics about the prices is they say, you know, it, it's value, not price. You know, we're keeping you out of the hospital. How do you value, you know, better health? That you know, the issue with pharma is business practices and pricing. It's not their product. And that gives them a different, um, I mean, yes, there's occasionally a bad drug and a scandal, but basically Americans want to take drugs that will make them healthier. They just don't want to pay this much for them. And they've actually been really active at the state level where a lot of the initiatives have been coming um, on transparency or other efforts. And they've really battled. Um, they put a lot of their muscle there these days. Yeah, because there's a lot going on in the Exactly. States. All right. Well, I want to talk about Medicare for a minute. Um, open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act doesn't start for a couple of weeks, but open enrollment for Medicare started this week. Uh, it's now underway until December 7th. And I want to talk a little bit about Medicare Advantage, which is the private plan option uh, that compared to what we call traditional Medicare. In Medicare Advantage, you basically join a managed care plan, and in exchange for getting a more limited group of doctors and hospitals, you also usually get more benefits, including things that traditional Medicare doesn't always cover, like vision care and sometimes dental coverage. Um, A lot of experts thought Medicare Advantage would fade out at least somewhat after 2010 because Democrats in the Affordable Care Act cut back on some of the extra payments that Republicans had provided to Medicare Advantage in their 2003 Medicare drug bill. Um, But that hasn't happened. Now Medicare Advantage enrolls about a third of all Medicare enrollees. There are projections saying it will be half as soon as 2021. Um, 
why what happened? Why are there so many people in Medicare Advantage? I think it's kind of fascinating. I mean, it's the number of people in Medicare Advantage has doubled since 2010. And Julie, you remember back in the Clinton administration, the head of the insurance trade group was always saying that we could do it for less. We could do we could provide the same care as traditional Medicare for 97% of the cost, and we have not heard that argument in a long time. Um, by the time the health care law passed in 2010, it was 14 percent. People, the spending on people in the private plans that are in Medicare was 14 percent more than traditional Medicare. And so in the health care law, they ratcheted that down. And people, as you mentioned, thought that this would be a big problem for Medicare Advantage. But they found ways around it. They um, were very careful to document when people were sicker so that they could get more federal money for those people. Um, that's the risk adjustment payments. Um, they they did a couple of other things. They also got more money for bonuses for high quality, so that helped a little bit. And in the past year, the Trump administration has really done its part to help the industry. They've given them more flexibility for supplemental benefits, so you know, Meals on Wheels and massage and all sorts of different things. Crowbars in people's homes can be done through these benefits. Um, they also gave them a, a pretty good raise. They gave them a decent bump up in their pay. So um, there have been a couple of things that have happened. And, you know, I think younger baby boomer That's what folks, I was going to ask. Yeah, They're I, more used to private plans. They're more used right? to managed care. They're more used to limited networks. I mean, mm-hmm. that, I'm wondering how much is the, the supply, as you were talking mm-hmm. about, the things that encourage supply and just the demand from people who are getting on Medicare and saying, yeah, if you'll give me all these extra benefits, I'll go with your network. Um, right. And then sometimes it's a continuation of, you know, the health plan that you're used to as an employee when you're 64, you just stay with them when you turn 65. And and there are also some protections against, um, uh, you know, catastrophic costs. Mm-hmm. It's It can be easier because you don't have Medicare A and then Medicare B and then Medicare D. It's all in one place. On the other hand, there was a, a report that came out this week about some disincentives that some uh, uh, the Medicare Advantage plans are turning down. Uh, rejecting certain uh, treatments or, or, or health care for sort of dubious. The, the report didn't have all the details I would have liked to see, but on you and know, this was a insur- report from the HHS Inspector General internally. Yeah, yeah, it was a government report saying that there are there are uh, surprise a large number of cases in which you know people have to fight for the care that they want or need, and um, sometimes an insurer has a good reason to, you know, you see something on TV or you hear about it from your next door neighbor. It doesn't always mean it's the right care for you or that there's not something much cheaper that will do just as well. I mean, back surgery is the most famous example. A lot of very expensive back surgeries that don't really do very much good and there's cheaper physical therapy that does just as well or better. So, you know, it's hard to, without a lot, but basically the bottom line is Medicare doesn't turn down that much and Medicare Advantage is, and that wasn't a good headline for the industry. But um, I would actually want to know a little bit more about what they're turning down and how easy is it to appeal. You should always appeal. Julie and I had this conversation the other day <laughs> over dinner. You should always complain. <laughs> I haven't yet, but I will. Um, yeah, the other thing I think it's worth pointing out now that we're, that you know open enrollment is open, and I think people don't realize this, and it goes back to the pre-existing condition um, uh, debate. Medicare does not, you know, to discriminate on the basis of pre-existing conditions. Um, traditional Medicare does not. Medicare Advantage does not when you first enroll, when you're first eligible. If you have a pre-existing condition, you can enroll in one of these private plans and they can't charge you more or, or turn you down or not cover your pre-existing condition. However, 
if you decide to leave your Medicare Advantage plan, um, if you want to go back to traditional Medicare, at that point, you might not be able to buy Medigap plan, a, a plan that will help, you know, offset the, 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 the rather large cost sharing in traditional Medicare. As Joanne, as you mentioned, there's, you know, no out-of-pocket spending cap. There's very large coinsurance um, for outpatient and for inpatient. Um, and you can get that Medigap when you first are eligible for Medicare, but you might not be able to get it later. And I think that's something that, that's been a problem that Congress hasn't really, they've, they've talked about it here and there, but they've never really gone back and done anything about it. And it catches a lot of people sort of flat-footed. Um, you know, yes, you can change during open enrollment, but you can't necessarily, if you've been in a Medicare Advantage plan, you can't necessarily get sort of the same uh, level of coverage if you if you change back. And then there's also the fact that, you know, Medicare Advantage is private insurers. And so is Medicare Part D. The drug program is also private insurers. So we're, you know, at this beginning of this national debate about single payer, Medicare for all or Medicare for more or whatever we end up calling it as, you know, the country fights about it for years to come. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, the, the, the proponents are saying they want something like Medicare instead of private insurance. Well, honey, you know, how much of Medicare is delivered through private insurance? Soon to be deal. half. Right, mm -hmm. right. So, I mean, that's just too much for most kitchen tables right now. Yeah, we're, and too much for us for today. Um, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with California Attorney General Javier Becerra, which I taped last week at his offices in Sacramento. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast California Attorney General Javier Becerra. Thank you, Attorney General, for joining us. Julie, great to be with you. Um, you've made healthcare a major priority for your office, which is not always true of every attorney general's office. Why is that, and what are you doing? If you can't grow up healthy, you can't grow up to be a great leader. Why should we have days when children die because of a toothache, as we had when we didn't have the Affordable Care Act? Why should we continue to see in California Central Valley more than one of every four kids with asthma? because we don't take care of them well. It, it just stunts your life. It stunts your career. We don't need that. California is the economic engine for the country. We want to continue to be number one. We need to have healthy people. But what does the Attorney General's office have to do with that? We have everything to do with that, because my job is to protect 40 million people, our values, and our resources. And it's hard to protect people who are sickly, uh, unhealthy, and unable to perform the way a the number one state in the country needs them to. Obviously, your biggest case right now, I guess, is the, the case with the Affordable Care Act in Texas. And of course, we, there may have been a decision by the time we hear this. But why did you feel the need to become involved in that particular case? If you've ever faced family members, as I have, who don't have adequate access to doctors or hospitals, you know what it means when you can't do what you, you know you must for your children. Um, we should never go back to those days. We should never go back to those days when Americans used to go bankrupt because they sent their child to the hospital. California is not about backsliding. Uh, and so if my job is to protect the people, the values and resources of the state of California, then I better be on top of health care because health care drives so much of what makes California number one. It, it feels like this particular case, um, you know, uh, which is uh, basically being pushed by your Republican colleagues, also attorneys general. I mean, this it just seems like an odd way for this to be playing out, but sort of a bunch of Republican attorneys general versus a bunch of Democratic attorneys general over something that one would think that Congress would have more to do with. Well, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act in, in Congress the way you typically would get rid of a law. They tried more than 70 times and couldn't do it. So now they're trying to do it through the courts. 
and I believe this will be another effort they fail in because uh, we've had the courts weigh in on this. The Supreme Court found the Affordable Care Act constitutional. Uh, and then more importantly than the Supreme Court and the nine people that sit on the court, some 133 million people have found the Affordable Care Act worthwhile in preventing insurance companies from discriminating against them because they have to live with a pre-existing health condition. Uh, some 20 million Americans uh, want to keep the Affordable Care Act because it's allowed them to now have access to a doctor and a hospital because they now have insurance. And there are several million young adults who are the children of Americans who get to stay on their parents' coverage because of the Affordable Care Act. I won't even talk to you about the benefits that seniors have gotten out of the Affordable Care Act and paying less out-of-pocket for prescription drugs or no longer having to, uh, to pay uh, a co-payment for their preventative care. Uh, I think most Americans have found the value in the Affordable Care Act. And so if nine justices can't find value, I guarantee you 320 million people will. <laughs> You're also working on reproductive health issues. Um, that's important to California, isn't it? California is very forward-leaning, uh, and it's worked for us. It's helped us become the fifth, fifth largest economy in the world. And one of the reasons we uh, have such success is because we try to make sure everyone can participate in that success. It's hard to believe that uh, women would have that same opportunity if we restricted them when it came to the decisions they had to have to make about their health care. And it also would be difficult to believe that we would try to deny the dollars for health care services that principally women use, but also family members who are not women who take advantage of to make sure that the entire family is healthy. And so we're going to fight every way we can for uh, Title X funding for women. Uh, we're going to fight every way we can to make sure that uh, birth control services remain under the Affordable Care Act. And we're going to try to make sure that uh, health insurance for all, uh, especially under the Affordable Care Act, is there for everyone, including women. It's, I've been doing this for quite a long time. I've seen a lot of attorneys general sort of um, fight, if you will, or efforts, um, particularly on tobacco, I guess, in the late 90s. It was always very bipartisan, and yet it seems like everything else uh, in, in America now, this is becoming increasingly partisan. Is that something that, that troubles you, or is that just sort of the way things are? I think we all lament that, that we don't see more actions that are actions on behalf of all Americans, not on behalf of red or blue Americans. Um, but I will tell you, there are places where we've been able to go as attorneys general, where we've been able to work in a bipartisan fashion. Opioids, uh, everyone knows that uh, that drug, those drugs don't discriminate based on your uh, uh, political affiliation. And so it shouldn't surprise folks that uh, virtually every attorney general in the country is behind an effort right now to get the opioid manufacturers and the uh, distributors to come to the table and, and do the right thing. And so uh, there are areas where we can work together, uh, and I hope there are more because uh, it really does take us working together as enforcers of the law, as state AGs, to make sure that people feel like we, we've got their back. You served in Congress for many years, uh, as I recall, uh, on the Ways and Means Committee, which writes a lot of health law. Do you have, did you have more impact there? You worked on the Affordable Care Act, or do you have more impact in this job? Julie, great question. Um, you hope you have impact, period. I will say that as the Attorney General for 30 million Americans here in, uh, I'm sorry, 40 million Americans here in uh, California, it, it helps that we can get things done. Uh, one of the problems in Washington, and I encountered this in the many of the 24 years that I was there as a member of the House, is the dysfunction and the inability to get things done. Uh, it helps to 
have a team of lawyers and law enforcement officers here in uh, the California Department of Justice that who let me get things done. And so I will tell you that as much as I loved my work as a member in the House for 24 years, I enjoyed getting things done as Attorney General for California. Well, good. We will let you get back to that. Uh, Attorney General Becerra, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first this week? Rebecca? I'll go first. Thank you. I picked something from The New Yorker. Rural Georgians want Medicaid, but they're divided on Stacey Abrams, the candidate who wants to expand it. So this caught my eye, not only because I'm a native Georgian, but also because it just reminds me of the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, and some of the articles that have been done over the years about people who benefit from government health programs but don't necessarily support candidates who work in their interests to provide that. And so the reporter went and talked to a number of people who at, the, at a clinic in rural Georgia who would benefit quite a bit from Medicaid, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to vote for the, the person who would provide it to them. And they, they didn't seem to have a lot of education about the positions of the different candidates. And, and this kind of reminded me a little bit of um, work down in Kentucky that Kaiser Health News and Vox did a couple of years ago where, where you all went down and talked to people and and found people who, you know, basically... Right. They, they loved their health care, but right. they didn't quite understand how their vote would, uh, you know, contribute to their being able to keep it or not. Exactly right. <laughs> yes. Joanne. This is actually um, an obituary that went viral, and I saw it online. Many of us saw it online. It's an obituary of a 30-year-old woman named Madeline Linsenmeyer from New Hampshire, um, and she, uh, or Vermont originally, who tried an opioid... Uh, illegally in OxyContin at a party when she was 16 years old and became addicted quite easily and tried and tried and tried to uh, recover. It has a beautiful picture of her and her beautiful baby boy. And I just want to read a couple of sentences from the end. And it says, if you, are, if you yourself are struggling from addiction, know that every breath is a fresh start. Know that hundreds of thousands of families who have lost someone to this disease are praying and rooting for you. Know that we believe in all our hearts that you can and will make it. It is never too late. If you are reading with judgment, educate yourself about this disease because that's what it is. It is not a choice or a weakness, and chances are very good that someone you know is struggling with it and that the person needs and deserves your empathy and support. If you work in one of the many institutions through which addicts often pass, rehab, hospital, jails, courts, and treat them with the compassion and respect they deserve, thank you. If instead you see a junkie or a thief or liar in front of you rather than a human being in need of help, consider a new profession. It was really beautiful. Stephanie. Yeah, I've heard a lot about the obit and can't. Uh, I will definitely read it when there's time, but a good suggestion. Um, I'm doing a st- uh, story by Ricardo Alonso Zaldivar in the Associated Press that ran um, on the 15th. It's about a study um, without Medicaid expansion, poor for- forego medical care. Um, it's about a report done through uh, GAO and the National Center for Health Statistics that actually is especially interesting because it breaks down what types of medical care people are likely to forego, whether it be um, going to the, not just going to the doctor, but certain medications, um, uh, dental, vision. And in some ways, this is not all that surprising um, because if they don't have coverage, it's, of course, more likely that they're going to not get 
care or follow up on the care that they need. But it's interesting in that it is uh, more ammunition right now as we see ballot initiatives in four states for Medicaid expansion. Um, And it also is interesting because in a number of those states, what you're hearing from opponents is that there are other ways that we can ensure that people who are low income and don't get Medicaid can get care. But this, I think, really does a good job of framing the problem of what exactly people are missing out on when they don't have coverage. And if, for example, those ballot initiatives don't happen, perhaps can be a template that can be used um, by policymakers in some states. Where can we provide the most help? Okay. Mine is a very nerdy piece from the New York Times by Austin Fract. It's called, Is Medicare for All? The Answer to Sky-High Administrative Costs. And it's really a guide to the things that health insurance does in addition to paying for medical care, things like checking for fraud, putting together networks, checking quality, um, administration, and profit. And while Medicare is often touted as having much lower administrative costs than private insurance, which is true, if the U.S. instituted Medicare for everyone, then someone would have to do at least some of these activities and presumably get paid for them. In other words, Medicare's administrative costs are lower than private insurances, but the numbers that we see are kind of artificially low. I think that we, before we as a society get a little too far into the Medicare for all debate, it would be good to know where all of that money is going and who is doing what. So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Steph Armour One. At Joanne Kennan. At Rebecca Adams DC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.